This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And it is Mayor's Monday on WHMP, and we have with us this Monday the Mayor of Greenfield, Roxanne Wiedegartner. Madam Mayor, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for being with us every month. We really appreciate it. I'd like to start by asking you what I think is on a lot of people's minds. School is about to start, and I would like to know what the situation for the schools are, the situation is, in Greenfield. Uh, Do you expect that there are uh, ramifications and consequences from covid have the students, uh, are, are the students sort of up to snuff with regard to the expectations for their grade levels? There's been a lot of press recently about how students were really hurt by uh, school closings during COVID. What's the situation with regard to the schools in your city? Well, thank you, Bill. I'm happy to be here with you this morning and every Mayor's Monday that I appear. So appreciate your uh, having me on. Thank you. Uh, as far as the uh, schools go, I, I think we're pretty well set for the for the coming year. It'll be interesting to see what our enrollment is. Um, it has been up in the recent past, but uh, we'll see. Uh, we don't get enrollment reports until October 1st, so it's not something we know the first day of school by any means. And um, as far as COVID goes, I think this main problem that we have, um, and we're still going to encourage wearing masks, the main problem we have is that uh, DESE has said that they will not pay for any pool testing or any testing in the schools. So uh, you're on your own if you want to continue pool testing and so forth. There there are discussions right now about continuing pool testing, but I, I don't believe uh, we will be doing it uh, in the same way that we did last year. Uh, it's primarily probably if we've done it all, it's a it's a very much of a time drain on our staff, uh, nursing staff, and uh, it has to be done consistently. Uh, health department does help, but if we do it at all, we will be doing it on the you know the back end of some some of our major holidays, where uh, you know as the winter gets going, so Thanksgiving, Christmas. Uh, April vacation and things like that, just to be on the safe side. Do you have any sense whether or not there is going to be additional work that students and the educators will have to do because of COVID, because uh, that remote learning, because remote learning was not as effective as in in person learning? I believe this year they're going to continue to work with the effects of that. Last year was a particularly difficult startup for the year. Didn't really calm down until maybe towards the middle of uh, middle of the year uh, because of kids not fully understanding uh, how to behave uh, once they're back in the classroom and so forth. But the teachers persevered, and and uh, I think you'll find that uh, some of the a, a recent thing was we will be locking down their phones. Uh, at the middle school and the high school. So they'll be using the yonder packs and uh, turning in their phones at the beginning of the day in a pack and um, they're keeping them on them, but they're in a pack and uh, and uh, getting them you know, locked, unlocked at the, uh, at the uh, end of the day. So uh, that was a direct request from the teachers who were having a very difficult time managing the classrooms. I mean, extremely difficult, spending more time doing 
telling kids to get off their phones than they were teaching. So that's a, it, it's been a bit controversial. Not every parent is excited about it. I'm sure there are a couple of teachers that aren't either, but uh, the superintendent thought it was worth a try this year. This is a matter that's been taken up by many different uh, school districts and school systems. I'm wondering whether or not you could go back and tell us more about the pushback that you have received or the schools have received about telling students they can't have their phones, they've got to put these phones into a pouch, maybe you could describe that for us, and they won't have access to their phones during the day. That's got to feel like kind of, kind of like an amputation of an essential part of their being for some. Yes, yes I think that's right. And so, um, and I understand uh, how parents, and it, it has been many parents, I won't say it's a majority, I don't really know, uh, but many parents have expressed concerns about not being able to uh, communicate with their kids or have their kids communicate with them during the school year, um, you know, to say, you know, I'm being bullied, I don't want to be here, you know, I'm not saying that that's a direct quote from anyone, but those are the concerns uh, that parents have, many parents have expressed. Others seem to be grateful for it uh, because they do recognize the impact primarily of uh, other students who are uh, constantly on their phones and disrupting class. The teacher has to disrupt class. Uh, so their learning gets disrupted. So some, many parents are, are grateful for it. It's, I wouldn't say it's an experiment. It could go on, but it's a opportunity to um, help our students understand what proper use of their phones are. And we would hope that parents would reinforce that at home. Maybe, well. you can, maybe you can loan out the yonder packs to certain parents that are interested and they can use them <laughs> later in the day. Yes, I was just thinking the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you know, around the dinner table, you mean? I mean, if anybody. Absolutely. <laughs> this is Monty. I'm imagining, though, it might be an administrative headache day in and day out with all of these kids to have to get their phone in a bag and lock it and then unlock it. Does that just add a, a layer of extra time, both at the beginning and end of the day? administratively to make this happen, or do we not know yet? And is this done in the homeroom, or is this done as they come into school? How's this going to work? I don't uh, I don't think we know yet um, about, you know, how much extra time. If my understanding is correct, if I remember, it was explained to us about two or three, two weeks ago, I think, two or three weeks ago, um, <clears throat> their phones will be locked as they come through the door, and they'll be put in, and then they have to put them in their bag in the same as they go out. So there, there probably is some logistical and administrative change that's occurring. Uh, I think I'd have to see it uh, to see how it, how much I would feel like it would impact them. And no one's going to have access to these phones. I mean, I, th there's a lot of private information on those phones. Are steps being taken to yeah. make sure that the privacy is, is maintained and the integrity of the phone is not disturbed? Oh, the kids keep them on them, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I'm sorry. So the, the, the kids have access. Their phones are, are in their uh, possession. It's just that they are in a locked pouch. Oh, I see. I see. Every kid has to put it in a pouch, and they can't unlock the pouch. I got it. Okay. I got it. Okay. Thank you. Um, let me – could we go back for a minute to this COVID uh, protocol that the yeah. school, schools are, are going to implement. I understand 
what you said, uh, Madam Mayor, and we are talking with Roxanne Wiedergartner, the gardener, the mayor of Greenfield, that the school system is going to encourage masks. I'd like to know what that means exactly. I understand there's no money from the state for testing, and so it will be limited probably to after uh, major holidays. I'm wondering whether or not there is uh, anything else that needs to be uh, said about how COVID will be addressed with regard to, well, this simple fact, someone is going to contract COVID. Someone is going to be contagious. Then what? Right. Well, I think we would do the same thing that we, um, we've been doing in the past, which is report it, um, isolate, you know, have them isolate um, and not come to school. I think it's more more concerning for the health department and probably the nurses at schools about the numbers of people that may do home tests um, and still not keep their kids out of school. So um, those are the uh, the home testing piece is is the hard part. We want people to test, but then after they test, we want them to report to the health department or in this case to the school who would work with the health department on all of the protocols around what the classroom should be doing at the time. But this is going to happen. There's no question about that. Although, when I see our monthly reports, both for the for several communities in the county that we watch uh, and have relationships with around COVID, the infection rate uh, 18 and under is relatively uh, low uh, from time to time. We'll see as soon as school comes back, what happens to that. Pardon my ignorance. What's the monthly report and which communities are, are covered? Oh, okay. So uh, it comes from the Greenfield Health Department, and we work with uh, Montague, Sunderland, uh, Soon, Leverett, and Shootsbury to assist them with, um, and Deerfield, I forgot, my, our, one of our most important and longest partners in this COVID thing. Uh, and Deerfield. So um, we, uh, our health departments work together, uh, report on each other, you know, report back and forth to each other. Uh, we have um, nurses from Montague who work directly with our health, health department and the nurse there. Um, so we just assist. Some of these city, uh, these towns are, don't have the resources that the city of Greenfield does in their health department. And not that ours is huge <laughs> by any means, but uh, and so we've entered into a partnership with these primarily. The one when we pick up um, Shootsbury and uh, Leverett, that's being supported by a very substantial grant that the city of Greenfield is receiving from uh, the State Department of uh, Public Health. Mayor Wittergarten, one last question, if I might, about the school's situation and COVID. If there were to be a large outbreak of COVID, is there any possibility of going to hybrid learning, or is that off the table for this year? Ooh, it's certainly not being talked about, uh, so I can't say one way or the other whether it's off the table. Um, we, I suppose on the one hand, we could be prepared for it. We've done it before but um, not so much hybrid, but remote learning. So um, I, think, I think that remains to be seen.
Let's turn to another topic, if we might. Oh, I'm getting a scowl from Monty. We have to take a break, Monty? We do. I'm getting that nod. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more with the mayor of Greenfield, Roxanne Wiedergardner. This is Mayor's Monday on WHMP. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. The Afternoon Buzz with legendary civil rights attorney from Ashfield, Buzz Eisenberg. Buzz will bring you his take on the day's news, plus arts, culture, and politics from the Valley, weekday afternoons at 4. Brought to you by Lundgren, family-run since 1964. Greenfield's largest automotive group is the place to buy your next Honda, Chrysler, Jeep, Dodge, or Ram. Experience it in Greenfield. The Afternoon Buzz, 101.5 WHMP. When somebody dies, even if it's somebody old or somebody sick and the family is expecting it, it's still a shock. For the past 110 years, the Saluzniak family has opened the doors to their home for generations of Hampshire, Hamden, and Franklin County families, offering comfort and guidance when it's needed most. There's a certain assurance from knowing that for 110 years, four generations have offered caring help with honesty, integrity, understanding, and the highest standards. The Saluzniak family wants you to know they understand things may have changed, but their dedication to helping your loved ones in your time of loss has never wavered and it never will. They are here for you taking every precaution and will help you understand how you can pay tribute during this challenging time. Saluzniak Funeral Home up at North Street, Northampton. Oh, people have always had a hard time saying Saluzniak. It seems that the CZ always gets everybody. Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton. They're not easy to spell, but they are CZ to spell. Hi, I'm Missy Tatro, Assistant Vice President and Senior Mortgage Originator at Greenfield Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. And I'm Mortgage Originator Kimberly Gates. If you're looking to buy a home, now's the perfect time to save on your Greenfield Co-op mortgage. That's right. We can save you up to $1,000 on your mortgage closing costs. Don't miss the opportunity to receive a $750 closing credit plus another $250 when we pre-qualify you. Chat with one of our experienced mortgage originators at any of our Hampshire and Franklin County locations to get started. Or if you're ready, visit our our new website at bestlocalbank.com and start your application online. So come on over to the co-op and see me, Kimberly Gates, or me, Missy Tatro, and save up to $1,000 on your closing costs. Close by September 30th. Be a first-time mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $1,000 loan, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And we'll be supporting the local news, valley talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And we are back with the mayor of Greenfield on this Mayor's Monday. Roxanne Gardner is with us every month, and we really appreciate your time, Madam Mayor. I'd like to turn to a topic, if we might, that's been much in the news, and that is east-west or west-east rail, as well as north-south. And I'm wondering if you could tell us your position with regard to 
the potential for increased rail service here in western Massachusetts. Is Greenfield going to be a participant? And how do you anticipate that uh, rail service impacting your community? Well, we will definitely be a participant. Uh, I am an enthusiastic supporter of uh, the west-east rail, for sure, uh, and uh, the north-south. We are already benefiting from the north-south for the simple reason that we have the John Oliver Transportation Center here in Greenfield. So, um, and it's, um, you know, it's the closest one to many communities other than Northampton. Uh, the city of Pittsfield, kind of way west and a little further north, uh, is interested in, uh, in the west-east rail for sure, and, and being able to connect into the north-south. Uh, same with North Adams. So my push is that uh, any north-south, I'm sorry, any west-east definitely comes through Greenfield. Uh, I suppose at some point the mayor of Northampton and I will have a discussion about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would like to be a fly on the wall for that discussion. Oh. <laughs> We do have a fully functioning transportation center here that, you know, was on the forefront of North-South coming back after COVID, too. So, um. Can you tell us whether or not the uh, reinstitution of rail service has had an impact, whether you receive reports on this, uh, what do we know about the metrics, and how it's impacted the community so far? I think it's mostly, I think the answer is no. I believe the Franklin Regional Council of Governments, uh, FERCOG, is studying that. They are, as well as the uh, Franklin Regional Transit Authority Advisory Board, uh, trying to get a handle on, on the, you know, more data, I guess, uh, versus the anecdotal. Uh, we can imagine it uh, being a great boon to us for the simple reason that it opens up employment opportunities for people outside of the Franklin County area and even the Hampshire County area. They might be able to uh, better commute uh, if, the, if, if the trains are run properly at good times. I already do know many people go into New York City from Greenfield. They don't all necessarily, they're not all necessarily Greenfield residents. They come down from, from the hills, but, um, to, to travel to New York, both for pleasure as well as, um, you know, a work assignment of some sort. So uh, I, uh, I know that anecdotally, but how many people get on that train to go to the city just for fun versus go to the city to work is, is not something that I have information on. But I do think that uh, others are, are tracking it to kind of make the case for both um, continuing north-south as well as uh you know, instituting Westies. My focus is on Westies. Are the present schedules reasonably convenient and helpful? I'm sorry, what was that question? Are the present schedules for the trains helpful, reasonable, appropriate? They're reasonable. Let me put it that way. There's a very, there's three early morning ones. My daughters use these uh, on occasion for work as well. Uh, there's three um, early morning ones, very early. One is at 5, 4.45 or 5.45. That gets you to New York at, you know, right about time the work 
work day, maybe a little hour or so into it. Um, it's the back coming back that's a little more problematic. Uh, you have to be able to, uh, you know, sometimes you wouldn't be getting back until a little bit later in the evening. And that's if you go on the very early train. Then there's one, I think the last one leaves at around 9 or thereabouts um, and goes, you know, for however long it goes. Uh, And then I, the return, I haven't done it. I need to do it to decide myself, really, uh, what's the best, uh, you know, best way to to handle the times because I think they are looking at the schedules and how to better better utilize them. Well, maybe you and, and the mayor of Northampton could take a nice uh, train ride together, talk it all over, and figure it all out. <laughs> yeah. A field trip, a mayor's field trip. Um, right after this call. <laughs> uh, Madam Mayor, I'd like to turn to a number of other topics while we have a few moments left. Uh, yeah. There was a large story that many listeners, I think, have not followed because I didn't see it in newspapers outside the Greenfield Recorder, but it was big news in the Greenfield Recorder in the in recent days, and that is that a member of the city council of Greenfield was censured. Um, and I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners what is that, what that is about. Well, it 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 was it's been brewing since January when all the new councilors took office. Uh, Councillor Lipinski, um, I call him Mr. Lipinski, uh, is um, began his office not 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 only not prepared to do his job, but not wanting. Uh, in uh, it seems, it appears to do his job because he refuses to uh, be communicated with by email. If you, as a constituent, and he represents Precinct Seven, he's not at large. Uh, if 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 you need to email him about you know a pothole here or whatever, uh, speeding et cetera in your neighborhood, then um, you don't get very far because in order to communicate with him, you have to drop a note off in an in a mailbox that's physically attached to his house here in Greenfield. Um, so uh, that's one issue. Uh, he began not wanting to. Uh, uh, be on in participate in any online meetings, and certainly in January they were all online meetings. And uh, he believes that online meetings are fake meetings; that they don't really actually "quote unquote" happen uh, in in a way that is conducive to governing. And uh, there's many other things, but most recently he called out a fellow counselor, uh, Councillor Bullock, Marianne Bullock from Precinct Five because of a picture that ran in the newspaper of her in an abort-the-court T-shirt and her bathing trunks. This was a, um, a art project by Anja, Anja Schutz. I probably mispronounced that. Anja um, Schutz. Anja Schutz. Okay. It's like Wiedegartner only. Exactly. Short. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Uh, that and so there's an article that ran about uh, this new uh, photo project that uh, Anya did, and so um, he just called her out, said it was unprofessional. Uh, she should be wearing pants. She should be wearing a skirt, maybe, but she should not be doing this, that, and the other thing. It was, it was about as 
tone deaf and misogynistic as it gets, and it was put in the recorder as a as a my turn, I think. It's or yeah, actually not a letter, but a my turn. My turn. My and, turn. For those of us who don't know and don't read the recorder, is the uh, opinion piece from uh, uh, that runs regularly. I think every day, almost every day, in the recorder. So, so let me ask you this: uh, the other piece that uh, the other aspect of uh, Mr. Le, uh, Mr. Lipinski's uh, service on the council is that he has refused, as I understand it, to take on committee assignments, which are, of course, crucial to the functioning of the council. So you've told us about all of these aspects of uh, this councilor's uh, service on the council, but he was elected. Um, and what happens next? He fills, I mean, he was just, and he was just, uh, he just was sworn in, what, in, in uh, January? So yeah. he's got a ways to go on this term. Is this is this the end of the story? Will Greenfield just, well, have him as one of the counselors for, well, the next year and a half? Well, I guess that remains to be seen. Uh, yes, the uh, actually refusing to do committee assignments was, in, in many ways, the, the real straw that broke the camel's back because that is a requirement of being a council, and it is where the work gets done. Uh, a lot of it. And so, um, and all of our committee member counselors are, are good committee members. They show up as much as they possibly can. Um, and when they do, do not, with excused absences. Um, so that said, uh, it is difficult uh, to remove a counselor. You, we do have a recall um, portion of our contract, of our uh, charter. But uh, it has to be done by the city, uh, the citizens of Precinct 7 in this particular case. Anyone can pull the recall papers and then turn them over to someone in, say, Precinct 7 to, to begin the process. And I have heard some talk of that, but I have not seen any action. Did Mr. Lipinski have an opponent when he ran for this council seat? No, he didn't. Uh, he was, he, there's, I I think it's between 1,300 and 1,400 registered voters in Precinct 7, as I recall. I'm, I'm going to say don't quote me, but I just got quoted on that. So anyway, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of a guess. 126 uh, people voted for him. Wow. Let me, let me turn. We just have another uh, minute or two left. We have spent a fair amount of time on this show talking with you, Madam Mayor, about the situation involving the police, the council cutting the police budget, the ramifications of that. Is this story now in the rear view, Mayor? Is, uh, oh, definitely don't think so, no. Um, still, um, we will, <laughs> it's definitely not in the rear view, Mayor. The department is functioning, uh, as best it can with all of its um, police officers still in place, but that will get harder and harder to do as uh, the, the salary line item runs out of money for all of them uh, is, is the simplest way to put it. So uh, there has been, and we've had to uh, not respond uh, right away to a lot of calls. Uh, so it, depending on the type of call it is, we've had a, several very prominent um, instances that uh, have required as all officers 
available to be uh, for per shift to to be at this particular incident. One of them was um, uh, a shooting in uh, Energy Park, or I'm sorry, a stabbing in Energy Park, and a shooting in Leiden Woods. And July was late June and early and July were were rough months around here for for some reason or other. The heat, I think. Um, so that is. Uh, is is an ongoing discussion about how we will handle that going forward. And I will be receiving the results of the investigation, internal investigation done by an independent investigating team uh, on a, a particular incident that occurred during the civil trial that uh, caused me to put both the police chief, who is still on paid leave of absence, and um, Lieutenant Todd Dodge uh, on paid leave of absence uh, back in May. Lieutenant Dodge is back uh, to work because uh, the acting chief simply needed to have a full command staff available to him. But I'm waiting, um, and I expect to get it very soon, uh, this um, investigation, and, uh, and then we'll see what happens going forward. When you receive that report, what's your process at that point? What decision do you have to make? Well, um, I'm, it, it will definitely concern um, both the status of uh, Lieutenant Dodge and uh, the status of, of the police chief. Uh, so, but I, I don't know exactly what the course of action would, would be what, until I get the report. We're going to leave it there. We have been speaking with Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedergartner. This is Mayor's Monday on WHMP. Madam Mayor, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. We yes, really you. Thank you very much. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Springfield woman is dead after a three-car crash on Route 116 in Sunderland on Friday. 35-year-old Carmen Henriquez was pronounced dead at the scene after colliding with two other vehicles traveling in the opposite direction. The drivers of the other two vehicles were taken to Bay State Springfield with non-life-threatening injuries. The town of Southampton is looking for someone who can repair damage done to the historic Center Cemetery. Cemetery Commissioner Robert Floyd tells the Daily Hampshire Gazette that despite several attempts, no specialist has returned his calls to complete the work. A large pine tree landed on the antique cast iron fence, and in December, a hit-and-run driver crashed into one of the columns on the entrance. Without proper bids, the commission cannot begin the process of securing funds through grants or ARPA funding. UMass Amherst announced their COVID-19 guidelines for move-in. Students will be asked to have a COVID-19 test before move-in, and if positive, will have to isolate for five days and wear a mask for another five. Masks will not be required, but they will be highly recommended during the first two weeks on campus and in crowded settings. The university also recommends students bring a self-isolation kit with basic necessities for unexpected isolation, including Tylenol, Advil, a thermometer, snacks, and at-home tests. At-home tests will also be available in vending machines, and PCR tests will be available through University Health Services. Elective PCR tests will cost $25.
For today, it'll be cloudy with showers and thunderstorms, high 76 to 80. Tonight, cloudy chance for showers, overnight low 62 to 66. And the outlook for Tuesday, mostly cloudy chance for afternoon showers and thunderstorms, highs in the lower 80s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rochivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El presidente Joe Biden promulgó el proyecto de ley de cambio climático y atención médica histórico de los demócratas el martes, entregando lo que llamó la pieza final de su agenda nacional reducida, ya que apunta a mejorar la posición de su partido entre los votantes en menos de tres meses antes de las elecciones intermedias. La legislación incluye la inversión federal más sustancial en la historia para combatir el cambio climático, unos 375 mil millones de dólares durante la década y limitaría los costos de los medicamentos recetados a $2,000 dólares anuales de bolsillo para los beneficiarios de Medicare. También ayudaría a aproximadamente 13 millones de estadounidenses a pagar el seguro de atención médica al extender los subsidios proporcionados durante la pandemia de coronavirus. La medida se paga con nuevos impuestos a las grandes empresas y una mayor aplicación del IRS a las personas y entidades adineradas con fondos adicionales destinados a reducir el déficit federal. En otras informaciones, a los distritos escolares de Massachusetts se les dijo el lunes que deberían enfocar sus estrategias de mitigación de COVID-19 hacia las personas vulnerables y sintomáticas este próximo año escolar, en lugar de implementar requisitos universales de uso de máscaras o pruebas de vigilancia de estudiantes y personal asintomáticos. El comisionado de Educación Jeff Riley y la comisionada de Salud Pública Margaret Cook distribuyeron un memorando el lunes diciéndoles a los distritos que el Estado no está recomendando requisitos universales de máscaras, pruebas de vigilancia de personas asintomáticas, rastreo de contactos o pruebas de permanencia en las escuelas y recordándoles que no existen requisitos de prueba o mascarillas en todo el estado. Riley dijo el lunes que está esperando que el año escolar vuelva lo más cerca posible de las normas previas a la pandemia. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our Black in the Valley segment with our segment hosts, the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks and Professor Carly Tartikoff. Here with us today, we have... Pat Onabaku, who is a community activist in Amherst and chair of the Progressive Co Coalition of Amherst. Attorney Leon Smith, who is the executive director of Citizens for Juvenile Justice, which is headquartered in Boston. And Alicia Walker, who is an at-large city councilor, uh, town councilor, excuse me, in Amherst, one of the three at-large councilors. We are here gathered again together because on July 5th in Amherst, there was an incident in which the police responding to a noise complaint that was actually uh, erroneous in significant respects, but the police uh, came to uh, a place where there were nine young people gathered. Uh, six were uh, persons of color. The police told the young people, you have no rights, and then detained them for about an hour. Uh, the incident gave rise to an investigation because guess what kids do have rights they were in my judgment uh, there was no basis to detain them there may have been a claim about the drivers of two cars that were parked 
and out of service, actually, one with a flat tire. So I'm not sure there's any claim that there were young people driving out of the hours where they're supposed to be driving. But even if that were true, that was two of the nine. I don't understand how the other seven are detained, but they were. Amherst had an investigation. The investigation found, well, it's not exactly clear what it found because we don't know what action, if any, was taken with regard to the police officers because that is a private matter under the Massachusetts Personnel Records Act. So let me turn, with that introduction, let me turn the microphone over to our segment host, the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks. Jacqueline. Thank you, Bill. Um, we, we got a very clear American Civil Liberties Union lawyers summary of what happened, and now we will hear the voice of um, one of Amherst, um, very, very important uh, community activist, Pat Abanabaku, Ananabaku. Uh, Pat, you were in on that hearing that uh, Bill just summarized for us and um, want to know what you came away with. Good morning, everyone. Um, I was at that meeting last week, Monday, as a member of Committee Safety and Social Justice Committee that the town recently created, I felt that the report from the town investigation was incomplete. It, it attacked the kids that didn't do anything and that a lot of inaccuracies in their report. That's what you, the, the, the gist of what you stepped away with? Yes. I, I felt that um, more needs to be done, that we need to hear the voices of the kids who were impacted by the, the police harassment. And um, after that meeting, I've had some of the families reach out to me, and we have a meeting tomorrow, the uh, CSSJC, meeting at 6 p.m. and I'm encouraging the public to tune in at 6 p.m. Um, I, I feel that um, there should be a robust report to include the experiences of those youths in the you final report. what CSSJ is for those who don't know? Yes, uh, Community Safety and Social Justice Committee. And our role, one of our roles is to provide um, recommendation and advice regarding equity issues in our town. Okay, okay, thank you, thank you. Is this uh, an official town committee or is this an independent yes. group? No, 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 it is official um, town committee. It was created in June this year. Thank and it's actually a replacement group for CSWG, Community Safety Working Group. Okay, okay. Alicia, um, as a member of the town council, a member at large, would you tell us um, what you came away with, uh, the level of success you feel uh, that was accomplished by sharing, I think you spent about four hours in conversation about this? Yeah, thank you, um, Jacqueline. 
So we did have a very lengthy meeting, and I feel like as a council person that I walked away from the meeting um, with honestly a little bit less clarity um, to the situation and as to what occurred there. Um, I think we were presented with a report from our DEI director um, that didn't seem to answer all of the questions. Like Ms. Pat said, it didn't include the perspective or point of view of the families um, or the youth involved. And I actually asked specifically if anybody had reached out to the youth at all, um, and they had not. And so it appears that the entire investigation was just the perspective of the police. Um, we were told multiple times that, you know, they felt very badly about what they said right after they said it. Um, and I feel like as though there were a lot of excuses and we were trying to get a lot give a lot of leeway to the officers involved. However, there was no leeway or understanding for the youth who were involved. Um, and so I left feeling slightly more conflicted about what had actually occurred that night. Now, Did was there not some uh, talk about uh, forming another committee uh, to <laughs> investigate this further? Um, so we haven't talked about forming another committee, uh, but there was talk about uh, the CSSJC, the Community Safety and Social Justice Committee, which Ms. Pat is a part of and was referring to, um, having them work together with the DEI director to build off of the existing report. Um, so that suggestion came from another counselor, and I also uh, vocally supported that suggestion at the meeting. We have not yet found out if that is going to be the case, but I'm really hoping so because it does appear to me that the DEI report was not fully inclusive. Could you explain uh, Alicia Walker? Alicia Walker is an at-large at uh, town councilor in Amherst. Whether during this four-hour meeting or during the report, which was the basis for this four-hour meeting of the town council, whether it was ever explained why all the kids, all the young people, were detained? Uh, so I actually think that that was one of the pieces that wasn't clear, wasn't made very clear during the meeting. And so um, from my perspective, I think that answer slightly changed throughout the meeting. Uh, and so at first it was, you know, it was a noise complaint. And so they had to check on the noise complaint and then they had to make sure that the youth got home because if, you know, the PD didn't make sure that they were leaving with a parent or that they knew where they were going and how they were going to be getting there, that there could be other possible outcomes and that that might not be as safe for the youth who were involved. Um, that then, though, changed to we have a bylaw where uh, youth under the age of 18 cannot drive after midnight and this incident occurred after midnight. Um, and although um, I think I did bring up the point that they were not actually actively driving and because they had a flat tire and were waiting for assistance that I'm not sure there was reason to believe that they were going to be driving again. Um, and so we didn't get any clear answers to those questions. It seemed as though they alluded to a bunch of possible reasons why the teens would have been detained, but never actually said what the real police report includes or what the actual answer was. 
Okay, we need to take what a we need to take a quick break here, Jacqueline, and we're going to do that. We're going to be back with more with this, and we're going to bring Attorney Leon Smith into this conversation as well. He is the executive director of Citizens for Juvenile Justice. We'll continue this conversation after these brief messages. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Some of the lowest income districts will actually be able to spend per student close to some of the highest districts, as it should be. You should not be underfunded because you happen to have been born in Holyoke or New, New Bedford or Fall River. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Hi, this is Nick Seaman from the Black Sheep in downtown Amherst. We're now open seven days a week from 8 a.m. And we have live music every Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 1. We continue to make our great sandwiches, bake our wonderful croissants, Danish breads and desserts, and brew Dean's Beans organic coffee. We also have a freezer full of entrees to go that will help you simplify your life. And if you're having a party, let us know how we can help you make it a success. Just call our catering department to talk about menu options. On a political note, always remember that the Second Amendment says, quote, well-regulated. Make sure you call your congressman and senator and demand that they do their jobs. We're the Black Sheep in downtown Amherst, having fun with food and politics since 1986. Save 30% at WHMP.com. This Tuesday, the Pines Theater at Look Park in Florence will be transported back in time to the 90s for Performance 32, Nevermind the 90s, a live tribute musical fundraiser. All your favorite local hero bands will be performing as their favorite bands from the 90s. Spanish for Hitchhiking as Pearl Jam, Winter Pills as The Sundays, Soul Magnets as Miss Lauren Hill, Sun Parade as Elliot Smith, Kimaya Diggs as Whitney Houston, Problems with Dragons as Nirvana, Bunnies as They Might Be Giants, and so many more. Each year in August, the Northampton Arts Council and the parent-teacher organizations of Northampton's public school system join forces to raise funds for arts enrichment in the schools and our community for the premier end-of-the-summer musical party. Performance 32, never mind the 90s. This Tuesday, starting at 4 p.m., Pines Theater, Look Park. Tickets available in person at State Street Food Store in Northampton and Cooper's Corner in Florence. Or buy online, hamparts.org. Here's a slice of advice about pizza boxes. It's okay to recycle the entire pizza box as long as it's empty. For a long time, creasy boxes were assumed to cause recycling problems, but a new study proved they don't. It's time to capture the 3 billion pizza boxes used annually in the U.S. Visit RecycleSmartMA.org to learn more about what can and can't get recycled. After you've enjoyed tonight's pizza, turn the box inside out, discard what falls out, and recycle the rest. Brought to you by the Northampton DPW. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our Black in the Valley segment with our segment host, the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks, Professor Kari Tartikoff, Alicia Walker, who is an at-large town councilor in Amherst, Attorney Leon Smith, who is the Executive Director of Citizens for Juvenile Justice, and Pat Ananibaku, who is a community activist and the chair of the Progressive, uh, Pro Progressive Coalition of Amherst. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks, the microphone is yours. Thank you. 
Uh, Attorney Smith, a uh, question arises as to, good morning. Um, the question arises as to the, um, what seems to be a contradiction between the report by uh, the DEI director and what was the reality for young people. And I think that there is a difference in number, the one cited in the report and the actual number on site. Um, the abuse of power was pretty much declared not having been an issue in this situation. Um, and, and I'm wondering, and the statutes uh, in this community were adhered to. What, what, what's your take on that? Wow, so there's, there's a lot here. Um, one, I think the video speaks for itself. Um, when young people who clearly have constitutional rights, as we all have constitutional rights against, against unreasonable searches and seizures, are being told that they have none in the most stern way possible, that is problematic. I want to uplift what Ms. Pat said, the fact that this process went on without hearing in any form from the young people is problematic because it was them. It was their rights who were being infringed upon. Um, enlisting the counselor Walker, the one thing that strikes me is, first we're saying it's a noise complaint. Then it's, oh, we're just trying to make sure they got home, which doesn't explain the aggressive sort of tone of the officers. Then there's uh, obscure bylaw. It feels like grasping at straws, to be quite honest. You need to have a reason to justify stopping someone. The police do not have the authority to simply stop people willy-nilly. And with multiple different reasons and justifications, um, that certainly calls into question and doubt um, the propriety of that stop and detention of those young people. Also echoing, um, as I stated previously, the Criminal Justice Reform Act of 2018 it, it decriminalized violations of local ordinances. So if the justification of this is that, oh, there are these local ordinances, uh, that in and of itself, not being a crime um, after 2018, would not be sufficient justification to stop these young people. So there's a lot going on here. There's a lot problematic. And I'll simply end with this. It seems the DEI coordinator talked about a local process for dealing with these issues. In 2020, we had police reform legislation signed into law in Massachusetts. Part of that was to create a post, a peace officer standards and training um, commission. Part of its charge is training, but another part of its charge is certifying and developing standards for the certification, suspension, or reprimands of officers. So I think the question is, this complaint was levied against these, these officers for their conduct. Was that complaint forwarded to the state body, i.e. the post? And if not, when will that happen? Um, for exactly these types of situations, a state body was created in the police reform law and you know, at what point will the post weigh in on this? So uh, there's a lot. So I just wanted to just try to get um, all of those different factors out. <clears throat> I think we might have another minute or so, um, Monty. Where you, could you speak? Could you speak on that a little bit more, Attorney Smith? Yes. Well. Well, you know. 
that was pretty much the summary of it. It's, you know, when you have a post that was created to hear about these, hear and weigh in on, on misconduct, that's something that should happen in this case, certainly. Um, and, I'll, and then I'll just end on this, back to the initial point that I made, you know, officers need to have a justification for stopping someone. We can't, even giving deference to their discretion, the fact that we've heard three different possibilities instead of one concrete reason um, as a career defense attorney that immediately immediately uh, raises my radar on this entire incident being quite suspect so uh, uh, pat where do we go from here yes so um tomorrow i okay tomorrow I one minute okay the next step is that we would like to have a comprehensive uh, report um that includes the um experiences of the youth we are pushing for compensation victim compensation fund so that the kids can get mental health um counseling or therapy and this is not over there is a group that is planning to um launch know your rights training in town thank you thank you thank you very very much Thanks each of you for coming. We leave it there. This has been Black in the Valley with the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks, Professor Kari Tartikoff, Town Counselor at Large, Alicia Walker, Attorney Leon Smith, Executive Director of Citizens for Juvenile Justice, and Pat Ananabaku, who is a community activist and chair of the Progressive Coalition of Football lives here. Olsen lops it. Josiah Johnson, end zone, touchdown, Massachusetts. Merriweather, daylight, end zone, touchdown, Ellis Merriweather from eight yards out. Follow the action all season long on your home for Minutemen football. The UMass Sports Network from Learfield. Touchdown, Massachusetts. Help a local baby stay fresh. One in three local families sometimes have to choose between diapers and feeding their kids. Let's wipe out diaper need in our communities. Donate diapers and wipes or cash through August 31st during the United Way Diaper Drive. Drop off new or clean opened packages of diapers or pull-ups at locations across Franklin and Hampshire counties. Find out how and where to donate at uw-fh.org forward slash diaper dash drive. And talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station.